All right, and so, all right, Camp Redstone kids, if you're four years old all the way to fourth or fifth grade, you know what time it is. There is a big clock, and there are some doors, and there's a couple of exit signs. Oh, there they go. Man, they, have, they are hitting the door quick. Look how excited they are. Wow, look at that great stampede of children. Unbelievable. And so, yes, yes, they're children. That's all of them, and let the mass exodus. So parents, if you're new to Redstone Church, you're like, what just happened? Um, usually it's a little more orderly than that. So, all right, so these are our kids. That's what we call our Camp Redstone kids, and they are going back out of this door, down this hallway to our cafeteria where they are going to sing, and they're gonna pray. They're gonna open up their Bibles, and they're gonna learn from their teachers. It really, really is amazing. And so not only are we praying for our kids, we also want to come alongside them and to teach them on their level, but it really is important for them to be in this space as much as possible, again, to hear them hear us sing and hear us pray and to watch us give. And and now on their appropriate level, they're going to be, uh, the scriptures are going to be opened and we're, and they're going to be taught. So I'm really, really excited about what's going on back there. And so we need to realize that, you know, more worship is happening than just right here. And it really is awesome. Um, Okay. So now that they're gone, okay. And we've been praying for them. Now that they're gone, um, can I get an amen to this? Uh, Kids really are like gross and disgusting. I mean, we love them, but I I mean, still remember, mommy, come wipe me. Mommy, wipe me. And I would come in the door and Nicole would look and say, I've been with them all day, it's your turn, right? And so you just walk into the cloud, you're like, oh, okay, honey. And it's not just, just natural things either. It's the dinner table. And so somehow, no matter what they're eating, finds its way. I mean, everything becomes a smearable, okay? Whether it's mustard or whether it's peanut butter or spaghetti or anything, it just becomes wearable, spreadable. It's just all a part of it. Kids are nasty people, right? If anyone has ever been a part of this process, get a little uh, woot woot, um, have you ever unbuckled a car seat after it has been implanted in your car for a number of months? There's an entire ecosystem underneath these car seats that is absolutely gross. I still remember the time with my little one. Uh, we'll run, uh, um, leave him nameless, right? But he is volunteering in Redstone right now. He's not in the service. Um, He found a mud puddle, right? And he started to smear mud everywhere. He takes off of his clothes, right? He just has his little whitey tidies on. And now he is just, just mud, literally from top of the crown all the way. And he was like, I'm a mountain man. And I was like, what? He says, I'm a mountain man. And he starts singing and dancing like a mountain man and coming toward me like this. I'm a mountain man. I'm a mountain man to which I've never had the idea to have the Heisman pose, but I plant my fist or my my palm right on the forehead of him. And I said, stay away, right? (laughs) Honey, syrup, mud, spaghetti. This is our extension of our parenting right here. You stay back there, oh gross one. This is what we're doing. Like you stay away. They're nasty, nasty little creatures, nasty little creatures. And so that's why we pray for them, right? So that they'll get cleaned up and so that they will become civilized like us. 
all right, because we, we just can't leave them there much longer, right? They've got to come into society at some point. And I, I mean, I'm serious. Like, we can't leave them where they are because if not, can you imagine kids running the world? Can you imagine what, how gross it would be? Okay, that may or may not have anything to do with the sermon. I just felt like I needed to get that off my chest. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oftentimes, we stiff arm our kids, not because they're gross, because they are. We, we, we stiff arm them for other reasons. Maybe it's because they're super annoying. Not just gross, but annoying. Maybe just not annoying, but they're loud and they run, and they have an incessant energy, or maybe it's because they won't go to sleep at night. Maybe they don't know their place, or they interrupt mommy and daddy, all for all these reasons. We're always stiff-arming these children because, quite frankly, they're not like us. They're not civilized like us. They don't know when appropriate talking is, right? They're just, they're just talking, and they're just getting on our nerves, and they're interrupting us in, in like serious moments, and we're trying to do all these things, and they just spend our money, and it's just over and over and over. We're just literally trying to keep them at bay and waiting long enough to, until they finally grow up and finally act normal and finally stay in their seats like you have been trained this morning. Thank you, right? This is what we do with kids. So let's open up our Bibles and see whether this is right or wrong. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We'll figure out whether this is right or not. And so we'll see very quickly that uh, Jesus is taking two very, very intentional steps in our passage. Um, he's taking two like, like legitimate steps towards something. First and foremost, we see that Jesus is taking a step toward a place and the second time we'll see, we'll see that he's taking a step toward a people group. The first step toward a place is, of course, Jerusalem. We find Jesus at the very tippy top of the map. He is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And with every paragraph and every page that we turn, we see Jesus taking an intentional step toward Jerusalem. He's up north and he's heading south. He's very, very far away from his imminent demise, the cross on Calvary, inside, you know, at Jerusalem, outside the, outside the city walls. But he is intentionally taking a step closer to closer to that place. And the second thing that he's doing very, very intentionally is that he is taking a step toward his disciples. He's actually walking away from the crowds and he's spending more time, more intentional time with, his, with these disciples. Each step, whether it's in a geography, right? Or whether it's toward these disciples, he's doing it with purpose. He's doing this with intentionality. He's doing it with great vigor. This is what he has to do. He continues to plot along. We know that uh, this is a season where Jesus is descending like he's literally walking down into just the depths and where at the end of that will be, become the cross of Jesus Christ where he will bear our sins. And we know that he is descending on purpose and he's continuing to take us along with him. He looks to his disciple and he says, it's not just for my descent, it's actually for you to descend as well. And so with every single step along the way, he gets closer and closer not only to Jerusalem, he's getting closer and closer with his disciples. You have to learn to do this. And with every step closer to Jerusalem, he says, I've got to go that way. 
There's no backtracking at this moment. It's only a one-way street. There's, there's no like turning back. There's no retreat. There's none of these things. He's, he's moving in one direction. Little kids stand at streams often and throw leaves or, or little sticks, twigs inside of a stream or a river. And it only goes one way. It's just going downstream. There's no way it's coming back up. This is what Jesus is saying. And this is what he's doing. I've got to go that way. And I'm taking you with me. It's important that we know these two things. And so verse 30 says this, for they, they went on from there. Okay, this is the disciples. And so they are, they went on from there. This is Caesarea Philippi. And so, and they passed through Galilee. Galilee is a, is a region that's just south of Caesarea Philippi. And he did not want anyone to know, meaning he's walking away from the crowds. He's walking strategically toward the disciples for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, this is intentional. I've got to leave the North and I've got to go South and I've got to leave the crowds. I don't want anybody to know. And I've got to take the disciples with me. And this is what he says. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will arise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. This is Jesus being repetitive. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago in, in chapter eight? Chapter eight, ironically in verse 31, he says, and he began to teach them, these are the disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed after three days to rise again. We see in Jesus this repetition that he is predicting his, his suffering. He's gonna predict his death. This is Jesus being repetitive. And it'll actually happen one more time. In chapter eight, he says, this is my purpose. This is what I must do. In chapter nine, he repeats it. And he's teaching them plainly. This is what I must do. In chapter 10, he's gonna pick up the theme one more time. And he's gonna say, this is what I must do. And in all three occurrences, Jesus says very plainly, the son of man must suffer. This is the tracks that I'm running on. I must suffer. I must be killed and I will rise again. And there's the ark over and over and over. Chapter eight, nine, and 10. I want you to get this correct. I want you to know this, that the kingdom of God rests on my shoulders and I must go in this direction. I must go down. I must descend before I ascend and rise again. This is kind of the motion of the Messiah. And he repeats these things. I must suffer, killed, and die. Those are the things that he's gonna repeat all three times. And yet each one of these actually has a little bit of a nuance. He, he, he teaches the basics, but he expands the narrative just a little bit. In the first one, he says, I must be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, those types of people. But in this passage, he moves it just a little bit. Look in verse 30, uh, uh, 31 with me. And he was teaching his disciples and the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So just a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a change. And this is why, because he's leaving the crowds and he's moving very specifically. And he says, it's easy for us to cast our stones on them. Those scribes or those Pharisees or those religious authorities, like they are going to reject me. 
And now Jesus is saying, no, it's a little bit more generic than that. Yes, they are culpable, but you and I also have something to do with my being delivered. And so what Jesus is trying to tell you and me this morning is that oftentimes we look at the bad people as if they are the ones that made Jesus die. What Jesus is focusing on this morning is like, no, it's all of mankind. It's you and me. And he's looking at his disciples and it's you guys. It's us that's going to be responsible. He changes it just a little bit and it's amazing. And so what do we do with that? How do we make it personal? How do we walk into a realization that our hands are dirty, our hands are stained with the very sins that put Jesus on the cross? Jesus is making it more specific to all of us, all of mankind. So the Son of Man is kind of a play on words. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Of all the titles that Jesus prefers, it's this title, the Son of Man. Oftentimes we hear the son of God, right? And this is who Jesus is, but then also the son of man. Because we know, I mean, just as a, at a doctrine level that, God, that Jesus is the God man. He is both perfectly God and he is perfectly man. He is both the son of God and the son of man. And yet Jesus prefers almost four times as much. He prefers this title, the son of man over anything else. Over 80 times he refers to himself as the son of man. Think about it. It's the hands of men that that he will be delivered into. It's the sinful hands or the sinful actions of mankind that he will bear. And yet Jesus Christ prefers the title that will associate him with that. Associate him with us. And this is what's called the incarnation, that he is the perfect in the Godhead, and yet he wants to associate ourselves or himself with us, the very ones that will turn him over, the very ones that will kill him, the very ones whose sin actually put him on the cross. That should blow us away, that he wants to take that step toward us, not just once, not just twice, but over and over and over, the Son of Man came to be delivered over into the hands of men. This is his job. This is his descent. This is what he is to do. But it's not just Jesus doing the descending. It's also he's calling you and I to do something similar. Let's pick up the passage again. After this unbelievable teaching, it says, and they came to, um, this is uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, are you, what were you discussing along the way? Now, Capernaum is just a, um, a, a, another Bible term that's probably confusing. and You just kind of walk past. But let me help you not to do that this morning. Capernaum is actually this moment where your grandma is cooking biscuits and gravy. Okay, this is what Capernaum means because Capernaum is actually the very place that Jesus had the hub of ministry. This is the place in which he called his disciples and he called um, uh, the crowds. This is the place where we were able to see so many miracles. Capernaum is home. Capernaum is safety. Capernaum is security. Capernaum is comfort. 
And so when you read Capernaum, just know that there is all kinds of emotions, these homey type emotions that are firing in Jesus's heart. And once again, he's got his eyes and his feet pointed to Jerusalem because he knows once he leaves Capernaum, he will never come back. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's actually walking away from comfort. He's walking away from home. He's walking away from the things that have so many memories wrapped around them. This is Capernaum. And it also says that uh, here, it says that not only did they come to Capernaum, and, but when he was in the house, right? That article is, is important. This the house, the is likely Peter's house. Jesus is in very familiar territory and he wants the disciples to get this right. And they want, he wants them to be comfortable. He, don't, they don't, he doesn't want them to have any distractions because what he is about to say is so very pertinent and something that really, really has to happen. And so he says, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent because on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. All right? So let's read it one more time. And so what were you discussing on the way there, guys? But they kept silent, silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. All right, so if you leave Mount Hermon or, or Caesarea Philippi all the way to Capernaum, it's about 40 miles as the crow flies, right? However, if you take a trail or you go around straight, streams or around lakes or those types of things, it's easily a 50 to 60 mile hike or stroll or those types of things. Okay, it's a pretty long way. If you leave Johnson City, the closest thing to about 60 miles is Morristown. All right, it's, it's a couple days journey. And so when Jesus says, as you were on the way, he mentions it twice. He says, what were you discussing on the way? Meaning over the last couple of days or over the last 60 miles, what exactly were you talking about? If you've ever hiked in a group, there's this slinky effect where you, you kind of spread out and then you come back together. You spread out and you come back together. And so this is what has been happening over day after day after day that Jesus has been with his disciples, but they had been strung out. And so as Jesus is walking ahead of the pack, the 12 of them were having this discussion. Who exactly is the greatest? So as Jesus has just predicted for the second time that the Son of Man must suffer and die. What comes out of the heart of his, his posse? I wonder who is the greatest. And the way that the original language is even, even structured, it's which one of us is the greatest. Jesus says, I'm gonna about to lay down my life. And the fist fight that's happening among each other and among us is not am I great, but which one is the greatest? There are 12 disciples. And these 12 disciples were in the most elite group on planet earth. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, actually comes and picks 12, 10 plus 12 people to say, hey, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be my apostles. This is the most elite fraternity on planet earth, right? You can't get more like amazing or more like, like hey, you guys are important than this. 
when the Messiah, right, the Christ actually picks you to follow him for a couple of years. This is amazing stuff. I've been doing some research online, um, whether you can trust these numbers or not, I don't know, right? So there's an asterisk because everything that you find online is true, right? Um, so, but doing some research and it, it looked formidable, right? It looked like it was like, it's, it's got some merit. So some, somebody somewhere says that there has been a little over 100 billion people that have put their footprint on planet earth since the very beginning of time. Again, I don't know how you come up with that number, right? But let's just say that that's true. Okay. That a little over a hundred, hundred billion people have walked this earth. 12 people have been called out by name to follow Jesus. If you divide 12 into 100 billion, do you know what you get? 0.000000000901, all right? I don't even know what that number is, but that's how elite these guys are. Jesus Christ leaves heaven and picks 12 humans. And what these guys are saying Right here in our passage, what they're, what they're saying is that's not enough. I don't want to be a part of the group. I don't want to be a part of the most elite group, the most elite fraternity on planet earth. That's not enough. And you know why it's not enough? Because it's never enough. It's never enough just to be great. You've got to be the greatest. And so he leans in. He says, I know that this is what you are fighting about and that's why they were completely silent because their hearts was filled with shame because this is who we are. It's not just wanting to be great. We want to be the best and we want to be the greatest at everything. And so this is how we measure ourselves over and over and over. For some of the disciples, they got their hearts and minds all cloudy because Jesus says, hey, follow me. And they gladly followed Jesus. But somehow along the way, they stopped following Jesus for Jesus. And they started following Jesus for themselves and what he would do for them. This is not the curse of 12 dudes on the planet. This is the curse of our human heart that we will stop following Jesus for Jesus' sake, but we will start following him or continue to follow him just for our own advancement. This is the human heart. This is the depravity of our own heart on display. And it's not just for them, it's for us. There's a term floating around um, us these days. It's called the goat. I don't know if you've heard this, G-O-A-T. If someone's the goat, that means they are the greatest of all time, okay? And so this is a, a title that, man, that's amazing. And so there are many kind of arguments or there's discussions about who the, the goat is. Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl, and so he's the goat, right? He's the greatest of all time. And so all of these discussions, Spencer Winston is not happy about this illustration. I'm sorry, Spencer. Um, so he's the greatest of all time. Well, there is... ESPN puts out an interview between some interviewers and LeBron James. And LeBron James is talking about the 2016 championship. And he says, I won the 2016 championship and I was holding the trophy. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was the greatest of all time. Well, the next morning, the talking heads 
I mean, they blew an absolute gasket. They're like, LeBron James, you can't say that. You can't claim that for yourself. That's not a title that you claim. It's something that needs to be given to you. And so you're out of bounds for even claiming it for yourself. So Scottie Pippen, you know Scottie Pippen, he's the right-hand man to Michael Jordan. He comes up and he says, he is great. That's a title that he cannot claim. It's got to be given by someone else. And here's the problem with discipleship. Here's the problem with fellowship is that we're trying to claim a name for ourselves rather than waiting for the name of all names to be given to us by the Lord himself. Which one of us is the greatest? And so Jesus Christ is so good to us in giving us pictures that we can understand. Way. But they kept silent and for on the way they had argued which one was, was about, oh, sorry, with one another about who was the greatest. Verse 35. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them. So this is Jesus Christ sitting crisscross applesauce. Very rabbinic in his way because teachers sat on the floor and he calls the 12 to himself. They're in the living room of Peter's house. And he's calling them to him. And he begins to whisper. And he says, so I hear that you want to be great. I hear that, this, that what's in your heart is that you, you want it like you want it, right? You want to be great? Here's how you'd be great. If you could be great, you're going to have to be consumed by it. If you want to be great, this is going to have to be your lifelong purpose. You're going to have to abandon everything. If you want this, if you truly, truly want this, and I'm not, I'm not mad at you for wanting to be great, but if you want it, you're going to have to give up so much in order to be great. And he leans in with maybe a little sharper tone, and he says, You've heard of military conquests, right? And these great generals and these great, just these, these regiments just walking in valiantly into battle. You've heard of these battles and you've heard of these skirmishes and you have these generals maybe on your wall. You've heard about that greatness. Or maybe athleticism. You've heard about these men, blood, sweat, tears, doing everything they can just to make it work. You've heard about these great feats and these unbelievable men. You've heard of these businessmen and women who've given up everything, given up everything. They've gone bankrupt. They've gone broke two, three, four times in order to get to this higher echelon. But you, you've heard these stories of these political figures who lost three campaigns in a row, but they continued on with their message and they became one of the greatest leaders. You want to be like this. Like none of these guys are your example. If you want to be great, he says, the first the greatest will be last of all. If you want to be great, you must be servant of all. And so with Jesus in these piercing syllables, he says, greatness is not something that you should be ashamed of. 
It's in our own heart. We're made in God's image and likeness. And we're full of dignity and worth. Of course, greatness is there. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's how you try to get it that we should be ashamed of. And Jesus, in very clear terms, says you have to be last of all, servant of all. And so what we believe, the greatest people on planet are the people that ascend to a hill, that climb some mountain and look down on poor humanity because they made it and none of them did. And so the perspective is up here looking down. And what Jesus is doing is he is reversing the arc and he says, the way to be first, the way to be great is to actually be last and to be servant of all. Instead of climbing some mountain, it's actually to go underneath in order to look down on people. It's actually to get underneath them and prop them up, to push them up, to serve them so that, they, that your own agenda has been gone forever and their own good is what matters. We don't live like that. When's the last time you lived like that? Never. And Jesus says, but there is a way. There is a way to do this. And it's by looking at me over and over and over and over again. Chapter 10, he says it like this. But it shall not be, it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. And so we have to stop promoting ourselves and we start need to fighting, fighting for other people and getting underneath them to serve them. The ancient world was filled with just these hierarchies and these, these, these kind of list of things that uh, they were supposed to do and how they were to do things properly. Of which, I mean, there are pages, maybe even books filled with seating charts of all, of all things. Of if you were to walk into a party or if you're going to walk into a gala of some sort, you're going to walk into some kind of festivities, the seating chart of all things were some of the most important or mo uh, the most written about kind of pieces of document. Like how do you walk into a party and where do you sit? Because kings and queens and dukes and all of these types of things, magistrates and all of this stuff. And so there's this, this lineage of how how you are to seat. Well, that's a pretty ancient term. I mean, we don't know seating charts unless we go to something presidential or something like that. If you watch the Emmys or the Oscars, you know that the really important people are up front and then the people that have been nominated have kind of an end cap. So we kind of know seating charts, but we just, we just don't know this world. Now, there's all kinds of debate on who goes first and where and all of this type, types of stuff, pages and pages and pages of these seating charts. But there's one thing that is consistent in all of these, all this literature, that at the very, very bottom are kids. At the very, very bottom are children. 
We could disagree about all this, who goes first, second, third, la, 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 la. But everybody, everybody knows who's eating last, getting served last, who's sitting last, who's being dismissed behind the curtain, those types of things. It's the kids. And so with Jesus talking about the first shall be last, and ser- last of all, and ser- servant of all, he took a child and put, them, put him in the midst of them. And taking him into his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What Jesus is doing is he is promoting the least of these. The ones that were at the bottom of the list, he's actually taking up and saying, these these are the ones that you need to be paying attention to. These are the ones that you have to understand. These are the ones that you have to actually look like and get into your sphere. These, oh, disciple ones. So there's this this circle of trust and now there's an intruder that has made his way into the circle of trust. There's 12 disciples and Jesus, Jesus is, is, is teaching them and who breaks, who walks into the circle, who walks into the huddle? A kid. A kid hopefully with spaghetti on his bottom, hopefully with syrup all over his cloak, hopefully mud, I mean, just all over him, hopefully smelling like last week's trash. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. And he strategically places that kid and all of his leastness and he stands them in the midst of them. One kid standing with sitting adults. And Jesus, with all the grossness that kids are, he pulls them to himself. And he says, this is the picture of the kingdom. And this is how you and I can understand the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be filled with kids kingdom is going to be filled with the blind and the lame and the broken. All of these least of these, all of these people that you just dismiss and you move away from, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. Disease ridden, Jesus walks into the disease ridden. The evil spirits, he walks into the the unclean, he walks into all of these spheres. And he's not just breaking down social economics. Instead, he's breaking down our minds and our eyes on how we see people. Because we have gotten too pretty. We've tucked in our shirts, we've put on too many collars. And we've sat silently in our seats for too long. He says he's got, we've got to change how we see life. And if we're going to enjoy the kingdom, if we're going to enjoy and understand what it means, you too have to be the least of these, least of all, servant of all. The only way that we get on the seating chart, Jesus says, the only way that we get an invitation to the table is for me to do the thing that I'm saying that we're to do. Jesus Christ becomes the least of these. Jesus Christ becomes the servant of all in order for us to have a seat at the table. 
he gives his life for us. So when was the last time that this looked like your life? What would it look like if a hundred some odd people woke up tomorrow morning and said, I will not be first. I will be last. I will not demand to be served, but I will serve. Not just once or twice, but to everyone in all of my circles to do everything Or to wake up tomorrow morning and really think about the people that you have personal prejudice against, that you've pushed to the margin and you said, yeah, they probably don't have much worth. And you've literally stiff-armed because of the dirt or the mess of their life. Like, I don't want that to touch me. This is what God's economy looks like for us. At Redstone Church, very practically, um, we're in a bit of a crisis. And the crisis is, is that they are about to outnumber us. And so in a real way, uh, we were getting our little prayer cards together. And so we, we don't do a ton of data at, uh, at Redstone, but we just started looking at these lists and we're like, there are 138 children on this list. And in a practical way, you guys, the crisis is, is that um, we're not sure what to do with them. It's a great opportunity. It's an unbelievable mission field. And yet, somehow, some way, you know, we have to get them into our hearts and into our lives in some way. Jesus says that if you receive one of these, you will receive me. And you won't just receive me, you're gonna receive the one who sent me. So when you hold a kid in Jesus's name, especially the one that's snotty, muddy, diaperful, the one that's the least appealing. And when you bring him or her close, this is as if you are receiving God. This is a very kind of tactile passage. It talks about hands and arms and taking, receiving, bringing. It's about closing the gap. At Redstone Church, we're disciples making disciples. Every single week, the Great Commission shows up on our front door. I don't know what to do other than to challenge you to begin to take seriously this next generation, to take seriously the fact that we have a responsibility as family groups and as many family groups coming together to receive these little ones. Give us 10 years and these little ones will be launched into adulthood, be launched into responsibility. And what we want, what we desire is not just that they become church attenders or become religious people, but instead to live a life that looks more like this than anything else, to be last of all and to be servant of all. And this is our prayer for us as we grapple 
through these types of things. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we want to be important. I want to be important. I want to hear my name. I want to be recognized. And yet, Jesus, you tell us that this is not the way. The way is, in fact, to wake up every day thinking of others and to hear their name be great, to actually pull the people that are in the margins closer to me. Maybe the kid that's bullied at school. It may be a, a coworker. It may not be as quick to a solution. It may be a neighbor who plays their, their music way too loud. It may be the men and women who stand by red lights. It may be spending our time investing in the next generation. It may be the fact that I become a prayer warrior on my knees more than out in public. Jesus, you've laid up an example for us and you've given us a picture of what it means to be great. I pray for us as a body of believers that we would desire to be great and yet our practicality is to come underneath, to push from the bottom rather than to ascend to some hill and to speak down to others from the top. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.